Welcome to Mortals. A podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history. From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues. We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, Janine and Mariah are crying about Futurama. Please be aware this episode contains mentions of missing persons and pet death. Fictional, but still emotional. Now let's get on to the show. So, just at the top, we have a little bit of housekeeping, and that is that Christia will be away for a little bit. She has decided to step back from morals for the moment to prioritize other things. As you probably all know, that we are three adults with full-time jobs and other commitments outside of this podcast. So, the timing can be a problem. If you are looking for her, you can find her on YouTube as Professor Peaches, talking about history and museum stuff. So go and show her some love over there. And with that out of the way, we're going to get into today's topic, which is Futurama. This is our opportunity to, as millennials, cry about a TV show we grew up with and that impacted us emotionally. Yeah, hugely. So Futurama, if you did not grow up in the same cultural zeitgeist as we did as Canadians growing up in the early 2000s, Futurama is an animated sitcom. It is created and written by two of the main creators of The Simpsons, Matt Groening and David Cohen. It began in 1999, which ironically is the very brief start point of the story in canon, uh, and follows Philip J. Fry, who is a New Yorker at the end of the 20th century working as a pizza boy on the evening of the end of the millennia. December 31st, 1999, he makes a delivery to a cryogenics lab. It's a prank delivery, as he seems to get most of the time. (laughs) To Icy Wiener. (laughs) To Icy Wiener. Um, And he literally, at the stroke of midnight, the beginning of the 21st century, the chair he is sitting in topples over. He lands himself in a cryogenic tube and is frozen for a thousand years. uh, And is awoken January 1st. 3,000 by Taronga Leela, the captain of the ship for Planet Express, who is at that point working as a careers assignment person for the cryogenics lab, uh, and discovers that he has woken up in the 31st century. And then the rest of the story follows his life and hijinks as a delivery boy in new New York, <laughs> because that is the job that he is given by Leela when he comes out of the tube. Uh, I just love that he's a delivery boy in the 20th century, and he's a delivery boy in the 31st century, but he's much happier about being a delivery boy in the 31st century because he gets to go to space. Yes, unless I see wieners and see more asses um, in, <laughs> in and abouts there. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, so the planet or the delivery company he works for is operated by his very distant nephew, the professor, Farnsworth, who uses the company as a front to make money for his mad science. The series <laughs> is just really, really amazing. If you've never seen it, 
my millennial taste says watch it. Um, it's been a while since I've watched it through all the way, and I'd like to see how the humor holds up in uh, in the nowadays. But I recall it being very, very good. And the yeah. episodes that we each watched for this for this podcast episode, um, they're really, really top notch episodes. So. They really are. Futurama differs from most of the animated sitcoms of the early 2000s, like Family Guy, uh, American Dad, that sort of thing, by being very self-aware, satirical, and insightful, despite the heaping helpings of straight-up stupid jokes, self-deprecating humor, dark humor, so on and so forth. It is done by the guy who did The Simpsons, so it's very good at absolutely nailing things on the head. It pulls no punches. Uh, and despite it being a comedy, I would argue that Philip J. Fry is, in fact, an extremely tragic character for a multitude of reasons, including two of the episodes that we're going to talk about today that have specifically to do with death, as that's what the podcast is about. Um, and funnily enough, if you haven't watched, if you didn't watch it in the knots, uh, it did end in 2013, but Hulu, it was announced in February 2022 is attempting to revive it with a new season starting in 2023. I did not even know that. I didn't know that until about 15 minutes ago either when I was double-checking some stuff. So that's exciting. Uh, now is a great time to catch up. Of course, this episode will contain spoilers for two very cutting episodes. Uh, but there's lots of gags and gaffes to get from, you know, the other episodes. There's seven seasons of this show. There's lots of it. So with that out of the way, shall we get into it with a bit of luck of the Fryrish? Yes. So uh, the episode that I watched that is one of my favorites and the one that always gets me when I watch it is called Luck of the Fryrish. It is season three, episode 10, I believe. Yeah. It's definitely in season three. And so knowing now, if you've never watched the show, knowing now... The, the impetus from this, for the series, that is, Fry gets frozen for a thousand years. He's a thousand years in the future. To him, no time has passed. He was frozen. He, d he hasn't sensed that time passed. But for everybody that he left behind in the year 1999, life went on. And so this episode, Luck of the Fryrish, really touches on that theme and pulls at those emotional strings a little bit. So the episode is interspersed with Fry's memories of his relationship with his older brother, Yancey, and also what's going on with Fry in the year 3002, I believe season three is set in. So the episode opens um, with a scene about Yancey and Philip, the Fry brothers, and a lot of Fry's memories that were shown throughout this episode are very much from his perspective, as all memories are. So it's a very biased view of what Fry remembers about his brother and his relationship with his brother. So keep that in mind as, as we're talking about the, the memory side of things. Um, but first off, it starts off with Philip Fry's birth, which of course he can't remember. But we do see that Yancey is quite jealous of Fry, particularly for his name. He wants to be called Philip. He screams at his father, me, Philip, me, Philip. Uh, so that kind of sets the tone for these memories. But the majority of the rest of them are definitely colored by Fry's feelings about his brother. 
So we start off with that, uh, and we return to Fry in the future, 3002 or thereabouts, and Fry and the gang of Planet Express are attending some horse races, future horse races. <laughs> and Fry's having really terrible, terrible luck. He can't win a race. Uh, Bender rigs a race in his own favor and wins. Fry loses. He okay. has one dollar left and loudly proclaims that that's the end of it. I You can't screw with me any longer or something of the sort. That's me paraphrasing. But he's just he's so sick of his terrible luck. And so he's he remembers back in about 1988-89 when he and his brother were adolescents um, discovering a seven-leaf clover in the grass as he and his brother were playing a game of basketball. And Fry, immediately after he discovers this seven-leaf clover, feels that his luck had changed around immensely. So having bad luck at the horse races makes him remember this seven-leaf clover that he's long forgotten. We see also Fry having some some great luck with a, I guess, breakdancing crew. <laughs> uh, As was popular at the time. Properly executing a sept- septuple head spin inspired by the seven leaves on his clover. So basically, this is a symbol of his, his good luck and good fortune in the late 1980s. Of course, Yancey is coveting this seven leaf clover. Uh, so Fry, teenage Fry, hides the clover in his Ronco record vault inside a copy of the Breakfast Club soundtrack, which he believes no one. No one will ever look for the Breakfast Club soundtrack, so nobody will ever find my seven-leaf clover. Oh, my goodness. So as Fry is down on his luck and he's remembered this seven-leaf clover, he really wants to seek out and find it again. And he remembers that he's left it in this Ronco record vault, and that's the last place he remembers it being, um, because he must have forgotten about it for a, a long span of time in his teenage years until he was frozen as a young man, I believe probably he was probably in his mid to late twenties when yeah, he was frozen. It's like not a twenty something. Clear. I don't think they ever quite say how old he is. Yeah, so he's forgotten about it for a long time and he's hoping that it's still there. So Fry, Leela, and Bender. Uh, travel to the underground ruins of old New York, or yeah. New York as we know it, uh, to ourselves today. And they seek out Fry's house. And they make it all the way there. They go into the basement where Fry's father had been setting up a bomb shelter, because of course in Fry's adolescence, uh, a lot of the history was colored by the Cold War. So Fry's father was a fanatic for all those things. Uh, he also was really concerned about Y2K. He was yelling a lot about that. Yes. Um, in the late 90s as well. So conspiracy theorist to the max. Yes. So this this Ronco record ball is stored downstairs in their house in this makeshift bomb shelter, essentially. And they break into the record vault. Fry opens it up, finds the Breakfast Club record, except the clover is missing. Fry is very upset by this. Obviously, he believes that his his luck is never going to change. They exit the house, very disappointed that their journey bore no fruit. And then they stumble across a statue. And it looks like Fry's brother Yancey. 
and the inscription on it says Philip J. Fry, the original Martian. And so from the flashbacks and from Fry's memories and from what he has told his friends about his relationship with his brother, they believe that this is Yancey, who has stolen Fry's name and made it to Mars, which was a dream that Fry had as a young man. So Fry essentially believes that his brother has stolen his identity and his dreams and taken over his life essentially after he was frozen in the year 1999. And I do want to read a portion of the the script here because this is my favorite part of the episode. I just think it's so hilarious and funny. So let me just... So Fry says, I don't know why my brother hated me so much. Leela, oh, brothers always fight. I'm sure deep down he loved you. He just never got the chance to say it before you got frozen. Fry, you think? Because I always kind of wish that. He gets interrupted. In front of them is this large statue. Bender says, who is that godlike figure? Fry, it's my brother Yancey. And there in his lapel, my seven leaf clover. I knew he stole it. Leela, Hold the phone. If that's Yancey, why does the inscription say Philip J. Fry? Fry, wait a second. That's my name. Good Lord, he ditched his goofy name and stole mine. Bender, apparently this brave Adonis, this Cadillac of men, was the first person on Mars. Fry, first person on Mars? I should have been the first person on Mars. He stole my clover. He stole my name. And he stole my life. And then he punches the statue. And now he broke my hand. Bender, his legend lives on. <laughs> so I just, uh, I really enjoy that part of the episode. Uh, it's great. It shows you a little bit Futurama. of the humor. Mm, yeah. Top notch. It's so, it's so tight and succinct. Yes, absolutely. So after this uh, encounter, Fry's encounter with a statue where he pretty much breaks his hand, they go back to Planet Express and, uh, talking about it with the other crew members there, including Professor Farnsworth. And Farnsworth pulls up a video about Philip J, quote-unquote Philip J. Fry, on his computer, who presumably is his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, because Farnsworth is Fry's nephew. (laughs) So that's how they're related. Um, And we learn that Philip J. Fry was a millionaire, a rock star, an astronaut, and he is now buried with the seven-leaf clover in Orbiting Meadows National Cemetery, which is the graveyard orbiting Earth. Uh, From the name and from context of the show, I assume National Cemetery means the Cemetery of Earth because in the future year 3000, uh, Earth is one nation and the head of Richard Nixon is their president. (laughs) So Orbiting Meadows National Cemetery. So Fry is furious, and with Bender and Leela in tow, he sets off to recover the clover. Um, They approach the World Heroes section of the cemetery, which is where Philip J. Fry is buried. And hilariously, they all salute the guards as they're entering, and Bender has a shovel, and the guards don't bat an eye. (laughs) He has a shovel, presumably there, to grave grave rob. And so... As they're digging up Philip J. Fry's grave, Fry's shovel, I believe, hits some moss on the inscription of the headstone. Mm-hmm. And he starts pulling pulling away at it. And 
we see the inscription on the tomb, which reads, Here lies Philip J. Fry, named for his uncle, to carry on his spirit. (laughs) And I wanted to cut to that right away and not mention some of the flashbacks because I wanted it to be impactful for anybody who wasn't, anybody who hadn't seen the episode before. Um, There's a, a flashback that precedes this where Yancey and his wife have a baby boy and Yancey's kind of tiptoeing around it but his wife says I know what you'd like to name him and he names him Philip J. Fry of course Um, there's also a flashback where Yancey discovers the seven leaf clover inside the breakfast club record that he comments it'll be good to clear out the hall after their wedding reception because apparently the breakfast club soundtrack is not something that people want to listen to. Groning and Cohen just had it out for the breakfast club soundtrack, apparently. Yes. Yeah. Um, so this kind of gets to the core of the, the emotions of the episode, which Fry leaving and being frozen and missing essentially so suddenly left behind a huge hole for the people in his life. And he's still embroiled in the emotions of those relationships. Whereas the people he left behind have a long, have had a long time to miss him and their feelings about him have changed. So even though a lot of Fry's memories are concerned with his brother's jealousy of him, coveting the seven leaf clover, wanting to be called Philip instead of Yancey, uh, Yancey has had time to miss him and realize the depth of his love for his little brother and therefore naming his son after his brother to carry on his spirit is such a touching end to the episode. Um, And now Fry, instead of looking at all of Philip J. Fry's accomplishments with jealousy, he's just in tears and proud. And instead of taking the seven leaf clover with him at the end of the episode, he tosses it back into the grave and, uh, don't you forget about me (laughs) starts playing over the end of the episode. And it's just the sweetest thing. Every time I watch the episode, I tear up. It gets me every time all the, the family stuff. Yeah. The having having a family that loves you and cares about you stuff always gets me in TV shows. So that's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite episodes of the show. It makes me cry. I guess I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that one, too, it really makes concrete the kind of ongoing grief of not knowing what happened to Fry. Yeah. Of always searching and you know, for Yancey potentially trying to find closure by filling that hole in some way. And that the the reality of having somebody in your life be missing, as opposed to being dead, is that there's the uncertainty of it, right? Again, I'm like, Fry is a tragic character. And for him to learn this and then be like, I wasn't there, like the ultimate FOMO. yeah. Yeah, and like Fry's obviously he's having he's having the time of his life. He's living a, a great life in the 31st century. He spent a lot of his youth yearning to be in space and to explore space. space. And now he is in space. Like I mentioned off the top, he's happy to be a delivery boy if it means he gets to go to space. But 
he's still he he hasn't missed those people. He he hasn't had a moment. He jumped in from one century to the next, not the yeah. next proceeding, but you know what I mean. And so his headspace is very different than the people he left behind. And I think this episode really highlights that very sharply. Yeah. Yeah, because Fry's not, he's not painted as a particularly mature character. That's part of his thing is that he's immature and slovenly, but he's very sensitive and, like, good-natured. And so that, yeah, really understanding the, the gravity of his situation when it has been one to the other, like, the amount of discombobulation and stuff you would feel is insane. And not having the time to process that grief because he didn't have to experience those deaths in a way, like he just came to and it was like, oh yeah, I just haven't like talked to my family in a really long time. Mm -hmm. And not having to sit quite as closely with the reality that they they had whole lives without him and then Absolutely. died. <laughs> and and they, he's, he's a missing person. Yeah. Until they die. And they, they never knew for sure. They didn't have that closure. So even though... Yeah. There wasn't a body of Fry's to bury back in the year 2000. They still, as family members, had to go through that grief regardless. And these episodes highlight that emotion in particular, both mine and your episode. Yes. Shall we, shall we cut to Jurassic Bark? Jurassic Bark. Jurassic Bark. This is one of those TV episodes that when you mention it, people immediately have very strong emotional reactions, even if it's been 20 years since they watched it. Because Jurassic Bark, which is the seventh episode of the fourth season, was aired in November of 2002. So it's been nearly a whole 20 years since this episode came out. So Jurassic Bark begins with Friendship hijinks between Bender and Fry. Bender, of course, is the alcoholic robot who was originally designed to bend girders for suicide booths in <laughs> New New York. Um, he's kind of a pain in the ass and an asshole, but he's he's Fry's best friend and roommate. And they're getting ready for a talent show when Fry notices in the newspaper that the Museum of Natural History is displaying a slice of old New York that they've dug up, and it's of, like, a pizzeria. And he's like, ah... Oh, Bender, let's go check it out, and you can see how I used to live back in the 21st century. And, like, things have changed so much that Fry seems to be the only person who recognizes what a wheel is. <laughs> I don't know how that's possible. That's just done for humor, I assume. I would assume... So Futurama's not strict about continuity, really, but everything's hover cars and stuff nowadays, right? So not a lot of utility for, for like, driving wheels, I guess. That's I guess that's a that's a good logical way of explaining it, I suppose. I yeah. Uh, so they go to the Museum of Natural History, and there's some lady leading a tour group around, trying to explain what a pizza paddle is for. And she explains it as being a disciplinary tool. <laughs> and it was interesting to watch this because I this did not crossed my mind at all when I watched this. You know, as a nine, ten, twelve year old, but the museum aspect of this episode is wild. So Fry walks in here and is like, oh, yeah, like this is, you know, this was also used to move pizzas. And she's like, excuse me, I am a professional housewife who's had 40 minutes of orientation. Don't tell me what's up. And he's like, this was literally, I did this. 
that the mannequin being spanked looks like me. Um, and he realizes as he's going through things that this is Panucci's Pizza, the pizza place that he used to deliver for in the 90s. And as he's going through the display, you know, looking at like the boxes and stuff like that, he comes across a fossilized dog, which he immediately goes, that's my dog. That's my dog. That's Seymour. And we cut back into a flashback to the, I think it's 96 or 97, of Frying being sent on a pizza delivery, which is, of course, a prank delivery for Seymour asses. As he's in an alley being annoyed and just helping himself to this pizza, he's approached by a small stray dog and he's like, are you Seymour asses? Might as well be. Here's your pizza. And so he feeds this dog this pizza. Uh, they form a, a friendship immediately. We cut forward and we can see that Seymour, because the name is stuck, this dog is now called Seymour asses, is a close companion. He sings along to Walking on Sunshine with Fry. Yeah, it's not clear whether Seymour is still like a stray that's well looked after or if Seymour is like a dog that he brings home. It's never really clarified. I always assumed that he had adopted him, essentially. I assumed so as well. So we cut back to the 31st century and Fry attempts to steal the fossilized dog by using Bender to break open the glass case and is forcibly ejected from the museum sans dog by security. Interestingly, when he's back at Planet Express headquarters talking about this with the others, they have this little exchange. Fry says, well, it's not right to make my dead pet an exhibit. That's like digging up Lassie and putting her on display in the Louvre. And Amy, Amy Wong, who's also a staff member and is a Martian, uh, says Lassie is on display in the Louvre. Fry goes, I know, I was deliberately describing a similar situation. And Farnsworth, who has a suspiciously skull-shaped mug goes, why don't you try protesting like those native Martians, always whining that people don't treat their ancestors' bones with respect, and then takes a big swig from his suspiciously bone-shaped mug. Uh, I love the way that Futurama cuts to, like, there's the visual humor that accompanies the written humor in such an intelligent way to to undercut what the professor is saying. Like, it's just, it's so good. It's so good. The writing in Futurama is spectacular. These are 22-minute episodes and makes us cry every time. So Fry, upon the suggestion, is like, okay, I'll protest. What does this protest look like? He spends three solid days doing the hustle outside of the museum. (laughs) Uh, Leela is, like, sitting there watching him with an umbrella because it's raining by this point, reading, like, a book of ancient history about what this... Um, ceremonial dance the hustle is for. And I just think it's so funny that there's this kind of rhetoric around how museums don't necessarily know or can make accurate conjecture about what artifacts did or what they were for. Because Fry is like, I'm a living person. This is, and I am from the 90s. Y'all got this all wrong. And they're like, no, 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 no. Scientists and historians agree and totally overwrite what he's saying. I think there's probably something similar that happens nowadays with museums, particularly that have um, artifacts and or bodies taken from indigenous cultures who are like, we would like the bodies back. And also you're wrong about a bunch of stuff. And they're like, no, no, no. 
we're the museum. We know. Mm-hmm. Also, no, you can't have your ancestor back. That's a that's a huge, huge thing that's going on in museums as a sector, and there are obviously there are varying shades of people responsible for these things that agree or disagree and all that kind of stuff. And I think it was really smart of the writers to include that in the context of the episode, just to highlight that issue. Uh, Really well done. Yeah. And if our listeners would like to learn more, you can, again, check out Christia's YouTube channel, Professor Peaches. She has a whole video. Sorry about the traffic out. Nice. Outside. She has a whole video about the issue of repatriating, um, items and remains back to the peoples from whom they were stolen. Just a casual plug. I swear to God, there are no noise ordinances in this goddamn city I live in. It's ridiculous, and it's constant. I apologize. So after doing the hustle for three days as a protest, the scientists come out to talk to him, and he's like, are you going to give me my dog back? And they're like, no, we still have so much to learn. So he gives them this slew of facts about how Seymour always smelled like wet dog, even when he was dry, how he could sing Walking on Sunshine, and a couple of other random facts. And the scientists look at each other and go, does that answer all your questions? Yeah, how about you? Yeah, sounds good. And they just hand him the dog. (laughs) If only it was that easy to get your stuff back from a museum. (laughs) If only. If only. So Fry takes the dog back to Planet Express, Professor Farnsworth is like, hey, we might actually be able to clone this dog because he was so rapidly fossilized. I think original New York suffered from a nuclear event. There was definitely a nuclear winter at some point. They joke about it being the thing that counteracts climate change (laughs) and global warming. But that there might be some nougat of genetic material inside and that Farnsworth should be able to clone the dog and give his memory back. And Fry is understandably very stoked about this. Unfortunately, the machine is not currently functioning, so it's going to take some time. In the meantime, we see Bender becoming increasingly jealous about this impending return of a best friend. And he, you know, he acts out. He tries to make Fry jealous. He gets a robot dog. (laughs) He gets a robot dog who at one point goes, commencing, two-hour yipping session. Yep, yep. And then when Bender kicks the dog, but essentially goes, maltreatment! Detected! (laughs) Alerting authorities! Which, honestly, I thought was just a a very good little touch of commentary about animal welfare. Absolutely, And uh, how nice it would be if our dogs could just be like, I've been mistreated. Come save? But as this goes on, we learn more about Fry and Seymour's relationship back in the 20th century, how Seymour became a regular staple at Panucci's, ending up in the pizza as hair and swimming in the tomato sauce. The real jokes about New York pizza in here. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's it's great. (laughs) It's so good. And the last night of the 20th century, when Fry sent on one last delivery and Seymour attempts to stop him. Right? We often hear stuff about animals' uncanny intuition, particularly dogs, as, you know, man's best friend. And so Seymour tries to stop Fry from going on this delivery, uh, tries to go with him, and Fry, before leaving, turns around and says, it'll be okay, stay here until I get back. 
and then heads off on his delivery, which is to the cryogenics lab. He is, of course, frozen in that incident and does not go back to Panucci's or to his family's. We cut to the next day. His family is waiting on him to show up. We see his father, Yancey Sr., trying to call him and be like, we're waiting on you for family bologna because it's the first day of the, or for the year's new bologna sandwiches. Uh, his mom's watching sports. His brother's stealing bologna sandwiches. Seymour comes to the house. And when they hear Seymour coming, they're like, ah, there's Philip now. Philip, of course, is not with Seymour. And Seymour does his best to communicate in the uncanny way of animated dogs that something has happened to Fry and he needs them to come find him. Uh, you know, he sings Walking on Sunshine and they're like, oh, that's Fry's song. Yada yada. And don't follow Seymour. At all. We know that Seymour manages to track the scent of the pizza after searching the whole city for Fry and does actually find Fry in the cryogenic tube. So we see that, you know, Seymour scratching at the tube, barking. The cryogenics lab do call Fry's family to come and get Seymour. And they do. And they don't look at the tube that Fry is in as they leash Seymour and leave talking about how maybe Seymour will lead them to their son or maybe it's all this Y2K nonsense. Oh and my it's god, just, it's so heartbreaking. Oh, it's so cutting. Down to the core. So we cut back to the 31st century. The professor has fixed his machine and under an open sky of crashing lightning, he goes, we need to tap into the... You know, the powers of nature. Magma! And uh, lowers the whole contraption down into the sub-basement, just to fuck with our expectations a little bit. And as they get down there, Bender barges in as they're about to start extracting DNA and is like, where are you? Why aren't you? But the talent show! Fry's like, I'm a little busy. Bender loses it, takes a fossilized dog, and chucks it into the lava pit thinking this will erase the obstacle to him and his best friend. Obviously, if you chuck your best friend's dog into lava, it's not going to go well. Yeah, so Fry is understandably extremely upset, and Bender's like, Ah, fuck. I love an inferior species, you, so I guess I can understand how you would love an inferior species, the dog. So he dives in, gets Seymour, brings him back. Uh, they begin with the extraction and it's revealed that Seymour was 15 years old when he died. Seymour's a small dog. That's a pretty late age for that size of dog. And Fry stops the cloning process, believing that the advanced age of the dog meant that Seymour had moved on, found other families, lived a full life, and essentially had forgotten about him. And I mean, it's 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 gut-wrenching to imagine ourselves in Fry's position here because this was his only chance to get someone back from that time period. To have one spot of grief ameliorated by this. Because Farnsworth had promised he could restore the dog's memories as well. Due to the rapid nature of his fossilization. Again, nuclear event. And Fry 
feels like it's not right to do that to his dog. So he stops the cloning process and move on. It's unclear exactly what happens to the fossilized dog. I believe they come back to Seymour's timeline in a later episode um, after they introduce time travel, because as we know, Philip J. Fry is his own grandfather. <laughs> and then we cut away to the last flashback sequence. And this is not a flashback that Fry is present for, of course. This is just for us, the audience. And it is Seymour doing exactly what he was told, waiting until Fry got back to Panucci's. And so we are shown a montage over time of seasons passing, Panucci's falling into disrepair as Panucci is left, now an old man, trees getting cut down, the fashions changing as Seymour waits and waits and waits. And the last shot of the episode is Seymour laying down and closing his eyes for the last time. So we, the audience, unfortunately, are left with the knowledge that Seymour did not go on to live a different life. He waited for Fry until he died. Kind of the same way that his family was always waiting for him, but with the kind of dedication and loyalty that you get the sense that Fry didn't have from anybody else in his life. Mm -hmm. A lot of his relationship with Seymour seemed to be based around the fact that they were best friends because they had an equal footing of being kind of scrappy and underdog and not, you know, maybe a little smelly, can't get a girlfriend, like being down on their luck and then being the counterpart for each other in that spot in life. And it just, it kills me on the inside and on the outside. I'm like, don't cry. <laughs> it's an animated dog. It's an animated and, dog. And a missing a missing guy, missing from his family, missing from his dog, and it just kills me. I it yeah, it almost evokes the same response as if you put a long brown wig on a big white dog and a full metal alchemist fan sees it. It just it just fucks you right up. And from a grief perspective as well for Fry and for Seymour, that kind of missed connection element of the being frozen for a thousand years is so insanely tragic that for just a couple of days, Fry thought that he could have part, this important part of his life back. That he could have something that, in probably in his hindbrain, he's like, that is normal. It's like when you're on vacation, you're like, all this novelty is great, but I actually need to take a second and just be chill because it's too much and I'm overstimulated, right? And it's it's a show where almost everything is played for laughs. Nothing is sacred except for the tragedy of Fry's life. It's one of the very few things that's not kind of taken for shits and gigs. And that's one of the things that really sets Futurama apart is it's like, we're not going to pull punches, but we're also going to come at things with the respect that they require when they require it. And uh, yeah, see... Seymour asses, man's best friend, uh, unfortunately a fossil, makes me very sad. Yeah, because you just, you want to see Fry win. Yeah. And he he's, never does. He's, he's such a good guy that he, he, he's such a good guy, but with such a low opinion of himself in some ways that he, he yeah. denies, he denies that reunion between himself and Seymour because he feels like Seymour had gotten to a point where 
Fry wasn't on his mind anymore. And as the audience, as you said, like, we see that. We see that his perception, Fry's perception of that is wrong. Yeah. And it's especially, too, because this is in the timeline after after Luck of the Fryrish. We don't see a lot of Fry's interior life, like, in his brain. But that idea of him being important post-missing versus his moment-to-moment belief that he is worthy of forgetting is probably very jarring. Because like you said, for him, he stepped from one century to the next, or from one millennia to the next, with, in his mind, no change. I believe the beer that he had been knocked into the fridge with comes out fizzing when he's thawed. I think so, yeah. Like, (laughs) it's literally split seconds for him. And so he still has this belief that He's not worthy of other people's, like, love and commitment. And then the reality of that is so... Is where a lot of the tragedy is derived from. His nephew being named after him. His dog waiting on the street corner where he said to wait until he died. And then him still being there fossilized, waiting for the thousand years. And then just just that... That miss Fry's own humility and low opinion of himself causes that connection to be missed. But only we, the audience, get to see that or get that emotional gut punch because Seymour died. Seymour's dead. He has not been revived yet. That's a decision that Fry nixes. And Fry, he's at peace with the idea that Seymour lived a good life, a full life. Yeah. And he decides to not pursue that reunion and that relationship again. But we, we, the audience, see that tragedy and feel the emotional impact of that. And that's something that Futurama, in the rare moments that we have these emotional episodes, uh, that it does really well. I believe there's an episode in a, a further season, like post renewal because they'd been canceled for a while and then there was movies and then they came back i think there's an episode in the in the latter half of the series i can't remember all the details but it concerns his relationship with his dad if i'm not mistaken and i remember that one being a very much an emotional episode as well i'd like to go back and rewatch that one too but yeah when they do these emotional episodes they they hit hard they really do and i believe they do one with his mother as well and while I was looking into some of the background of Jurassic Bark, it suggested that originally the thought was that Fry would find his mother fossilized. And they felt that that was actually too sad to do. They also toyed with the idea of it being Yancey Sr., his father. But again, too sad. Too sad. Which, if you think about, if Fry had reached the same conclusion... If it was like, okay, we can clone your mother and give her memories back, but she lived a full 40 years after you disappeared. If you went, she's probably moved on and forgotten about me. So don't do it. Does a mother ever forget their child who goes missing? You would think not. The way that she's framed in flashbacks, including the flashback that we see of her on New Year's Day, the day after Fry has gone missing. She's wearing a cheese hat. She's watching a sporting event, which were shown in flashbacks that she almost cares more about sports than she does about her kids. And that in the midst of discussing 
where Fry is, she literally mid-sentence stops to cheer and then continues her sentence as though she didn't have a sports-related outburst in the middle. So it's, I think that's, again, the, the miscommunication of intention and loyalty and that misperception of reality versus the way Fry sees himself. Right? Because like you said, Fry never gets the win. It takes the whole season for him to get the girl. And that's another tragic episode that when he has a brain parasite is the only time that Leela falls in love with him is when he's not himself. Mm -hmm. Fry is an inherently extremely tragic character in an extremely comedic series. If and you, you haven't just watched Futurama, go watch you, it. You always you always root for him. Even if he's not the smartest crayon yeah. in the box, he's so incredibly charming and you just you always want to root for him. Yeah. So those are two episodes of Futurama that made us cry. Uh <laughs> How about you? I will say, um there's something to be said for getting out these emotions and, and teasing them out in an art form, like a, a comedy series. Um, it allows us a little bit of freedom to experiment and play with storylines and tug at those heartstrings and just see, see what comes out of that uh, to help us process these emotions. And yeah. I very much appreciate the treatment that Futurama gave these issues. Same. And I think it's important to in not just in this but in all art like you say that it gives us language and moments to point to in order to explain it to other people to make the connections interpersonally to be like i cannot this thing is too close to me to translate and to make understandable and to break into small pieces because it feels too big mm -hmm. but this thing is similar it's like this thing that point of comparison is so important and it makes me wonder about the writers and what they were pulling from with those like the the physical drama and the physical comedy of it the you know seeing the statue of philip j fry and thinking it's yancey but it's just a strong resemblance that then recharacterizes it his parents not seeing him in the cryogenic tube because they're focused on the dog and the dog is focused on Fry. It's just those missed moments. <laughs> Emotions. Emotions! Yeah, so feel free to come and tell us on Instagram and Twitter what Futurama episodes made you cry. Uh, and if there's other series with sob-inducing episodes that we should watch. Uh, I vote for Full Metal Alchemist, particularly Brotherhood. Well, no, both, because Maze Hughes in the original is uh, much worse than <laughs> it is in Brotherhood. I will say I have not watched Full Metal Alchemist. Oh, boy. I You're going to have to, because there are some in there that are absolutely gut-punching mm. in future, a similar uh, way. Future medleys. Future medleys. I think that has been our episode on uh, episodes of Futurama that made these two death nerds cry. Both 20 years ago and today. Yeah. Which episodes made you cry and why was it Luck of the Fryrish and Jurassic Bark? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that does it for us today. Uh, Spotify now has ratings. So if you wanted to pop us a rating on there or on iTunes or wherever you are listening, uh, we super appreciate the time 
that you spend listening to these episodes, telling people about it, and our two patrons, holy shit, uh, big shout out to y'all. If you didn't know we had a, a Patreon, we do. Currently, it's just for the good warm feeling in your heart of supporting us and making it a little more feasible to do this. But also, you get to listen to the episodes early! So exciting! Yes, we try our best to uh, to upload them there early, if possible. We are human beings with many responsibilities, but uh, we try our best. And like Mariah says, uh, mostly it's just warm, fuzzy feelings of supporting us doing this wonderful podcast. There will be, here and there, some extra things, but those will be as time permits on our busy schedules. So I don't want to mislead people into thinking there's tons of hidden things behind the curtain that they're not getting access to if they don't support us on Patreon. But there's a few things if you want yeah. them. Yeah, if you lose a tune in your couch them. every month, this is a good use for it. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. And even if you're just listening, we appreciate you all the same. Oh, by the way, uh, for anybody who's not in Canada, a toonie is a $2 coin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we forget <Yeah>. sometimes. <laughs> and our $1 coins are called loonies. So if you also lose two of those... They're called loonies because there's a loon on them. A bird. And then, and then a toonie because there's it's $2, so two loonies becomes toonies. Yes. And it's, it doesn't our money have looks like a Monopoly on money. it. It has a polar bear, I believe. I think Canada's so. Canada's money is wild. If you've never seen it, look it up. It looks like Monopoly money. It's very fun, and you can't tear it. If it's frozen, though, you can snap it, and you can melt it in the dryer. But if you lose it in the snow over the winter, because it's like this polymer stuff, it's still it's still good. That's the advantage of Canadian money right now. Anyways, thank That's you for it. listening. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast, and on our website, mortalspodcast.com. Show your support, access bonus content, and help us keep ads out of your ears by joining our community at patreon.com slash mortals podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. Na, na, na. <laughs> Such a great theme song. It's a great theme song.